the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Monday, December 14th edition of The Dan Proft Show and uh, Momentous Day. Two fronts. One, of course, the electors in the 50 states are meeting to uh, have and meeting and have met to, to vote today to uh, confer their votes that will be counted by Congress on January 6th. So that's one track which we'll talk about in a little bit, including with Michael Goodwin, as well as later in the show with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who's the chairman of the Texas Republican Party. And then uh, per what happened uh, this weekend into today, the distribution of the first batch of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines. This was the subject of much discussion over the weekend on the Sunday talkies, as you would expect, including with uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, who subjected himself to Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation to uh, describe what is happening, talking about uh, this uh, first almost three million doses and uh, what is anticipated will be achieved between now and the end of this month and then now and the end of February, the horizon they have set up for the logistics as well as the associated supply to run through these supply chains. Uh, so we're shipping 2.9 million doses of vaccines. So whenever they get them in arms, that's 2.9 million people getting vaccinated. We're reserving that second dose of vaccine. You so expect that, they can that get to that be later. 2.9 million people receiving those doses this week. Uh, I didn't say this week, as soon as they're able to right. vaccinate. Now, I will say, as the health commissioner in South Carolina said, we're going to be using this vaccine, not storing it. So I think it'll go pretty quickly. He uh, mentioned that despite some confusion and controversy, much of it uh, Margaret Brennan tried to whip up. The focus is on nursing homes, getting all nursing home residents, nursing home long-term care facility residents vaccinated by Christmas, which is uh, would be a substantial accomplishment. There is no delay, and he talked about to the conversations that uh, the Trump administration has had with CVS and Walgreens, who are setting up the uh, programs through which these vaccinations will occur at these long-term care facilities. Yeah, no, we're not actually asking the nursing nursing homes to wait. And we were able to have a really good discussion with CVS leadership about this misunderstanding that they had uh, at the president's vaccine distribution summit. So I think we've gotten that all straightened out with them. And uh, we'll be getting CVS and Walgreens vaccinating our nursing home people. Almost 100 percent of our nursing homes have signed up with that program for a turnkey vaccination operation. And you know what's amazing? When will that start Well, it it can start really any day. The vaccines are going out as soon as they receive vaccine. Uh, This is according to the governors telling us to ship to them. We could have every nursing home patient vaccinated in the United States by Christmas. It's really a remarkable, remarkable prospect. It would be. And uh, after the break, we're going to talk to Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani, formerly of the Columbia University School of Public Health, about uh, the vaccines as well. And some of the issues surrounding concerns about taking the vaccine or even sort of my perspective as being somewhat 
somewhat indifferent. We'll get his reaction, including to some of what uh, Secretary Azar had to say. But I, I also wanted to go to some politics here because, of course, you just can't do anything that does not necessarily involve politics and sniping and posturing and positioning and blame shifting. And so Margaret Brennan tried to make the case that some National Governors Association report suggested that a number of states – the beggar states, the terribly run, financially and bankrupt and bankrupt in every other way, big blue states are bitching for more money, Azar responded. Listen to this exchange, though. And it's important to, to listen to the exchange because of the premise from which Brennan starts, which is the big government crybabies premise. Well, Margaret, we are getting them the money. They actually haven't. New York, to give you an example, as of a week ago, New York State and New York City haven't drawn down a penny of the money that we've made available for the vaccine distribution efforts. I think we've had 1% of the monies available drawn down. And part of that is there's a bit of partisanship going on, let's be honest, with this NGA thing. What, what's happening is we bought the vaccine. They don't have to pay for vaccine. We're paying to distribute the vaccine. We and private payers are paying to administer the vaccines. We have set up turnkey operations with pharmacy programs to administer the vaccines. The states need to operate as air traffic controllers. I've been in South Carolina with the governor's team. I've been in Tennessee with the governor's team. Money's not the issue, and they've got very good plans. And, but well, this is a bipartisan gonna, group, won't be as the you barrier. know, that says they need the money. Twelve states say they need more federal guidance on data reporting, training, communications. Twelve states say they're waiting on information from the federal government and distribution. Seven states are concerned about funding from the federal government. Others say they need more federal coordination among the pharmacies to roll out at the long-term care facilities, the nursing homes we talked about. Why hasn't this been worked out? And Margaret, it has been worked out. There's just a lot of partisan sniping going on right now when we ought to be celebrating the fact that we've got millions and millions of doses of FDA-safe and effective vaccine going out. Our governors have this. We've worked out on all 64 public health jurisdictions in this country. We've worked out comprehensive plans. We have provided feedback back and forth. At the actual technical level, this is working. It will work. It's under control. We're leveraging the private distribution system that works every year for flu vaccines and other vaccines. Mm -hmm. The people involved, DOD, CVS, Walgreens, FedEx, UPS, McKesson, what they said on Wednesday at the summit is, this is what we do. Let us do our jobs. Right. Again, this is a bipartisan group. Uh, again, it's a bipartisan group. Well, let me tell you something, and this was not uh, Alex Azar's purpose to be on her show to get into this the way that I'm going to. But let me tell you something, Margaret Brennan, bipartisan reports from national politician associations like the NGA, the National Governors Association, uh, can often just be compendiums of everybody's wish list, wish list or complaints. That doesn't mean there's bipartisan agreement. That doesn't mean the majority of the states that you didn't mention are going to run cover for the bad student states in the class that are crying about needing $8 billion and needing more uh, coordination done for them between uh, pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens and nursing homes and the other a laundry list of, of complaints slash wants that you ticked off. Oh, it's bipartisan. Therefore, it's uh, – it's received wisdom. It came down from tablets to Margaret Brennan and face of the nation. So annoying to start from the premise of the the states that are, are beggar states, and they've always got a complaint about who's not doing enough for them to expand their and support their big government houses of cards. So I, I just had that that the the tenor of that interview from her was super annoying. So I just had to remark upon it. And oh, by the way, of course, this morning 
A nurse in New York was among the first to receive the Pfizer-BioNTech shot. Healthcare workers throughout the U.S. also set to receive the vaccine today. Some 145 U.S. hospitals, other sites were slated to receive doses on Monday, followed by 425 hospitals on Tuesday, 66 on Wednesday. This according to General Gustav Perna, who's the chief operating officer of Operation Warp Speed. In addition to that, just as sort of a resource, wanted to point your attention to in case you're interested in tracking the uh, allocation of the doses with each batch. Uh, There's a good uh, dashboard that's been set up on the uh, vaccines, public.tableau.com, public.tableau.com, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. But it's, you know, it's like the world of meters or the Johns Hopkins dashboards for COVID cases, all things COVID related. This is a dashboard for all things virus related. Uh, vaccine related, excuse me. Uh, One other point, uh, of course, the distribution of vaccine comes on the same day that indoor restaurants, indoor indoor dining uh, at restaurants in New York City is banned. And so I just wanted to comment on something because I just thought this was sort of, you know, terribly, ironically delightful. And I don't mean happy delightful. I just mean pull your hair out delightful, the, the idiocy of it all. Again, according to the state of New York, Restaurants and bars account for 1.43% of transmissions. Marion County, Oregon, 1% of transmissions traced to restaurants and bars. Uh, This is seen around the country, including in my hometown of Chicagoland. Similar. I think it's barely in the top 10 restaurants and bars in terms of the contact tracing data, and it's under 2% as it is in New York. Contact tracing, 74% of new cases are attributed to household gatherings where individuals are less cautious and health precautions are less prevalent. So you're driving people out of dining places where there's less transmission to staying quarantined in places where there's more transmission. That makes sense. And so juxtapose this uh, just briefly with a story out in the New York Post over the weekend. A team of scientists using genetic sequencing found that between 205 and 300,000 coronavirus cases across the United States are linked to a super spreader medical conference in Boston in late February of this year. The conference previously thought to have been associated with about 20,000 cases in the Boston metro area, but upon further research, 205 to 300,000 cases, Biogen, which is a biotech company that delivers therapies for treatment of neurological diseases to patients worldwide. And I'm not picking on them or arguing culpability here. This is February before so much was known, of course. But the idea that the super spreader event nine months ago, 10 months ago, was a two-day medical conference at a biotech company. And the non-spread environments are places like restaurants. And we're shutting down restaurants and saying nothing of sort of professional conferences, although they're doing this on their own out of best practices, of course. But I just found, you know, the, the irony of what we think we know and what the experts tell us are the policies we, sh- we should pursue. And then the supporting science and data that they speak about in the abstract because the specifics don't support their positions. Uh, it's just so telling. It's just so telling how upside down this all is. This is damn Tell me why I don't like Monday. Tell me why I don't like Monday. Tell me why I don't like Monday. So I want to shoot. The whole day down. This is the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Dr. Francis Collins, he's the head of the National Institutes for Health. He was on Meet the Press with that uh, yapping little terrier, Chuck Todd, yesterday, urging people to overcome their skepticism and line up to take uh, the vaccine now that uh, distribution has begun. This is a source of great concern for all of us, and I would like to plead to people who are listening to this this morning to really hit the reset button on whatever they think they knew about this vaccine that might cause them to be so skeptical. The data is out there now. It's been discussed in a public meeting, all the details of the safety and the efficacy for anybody who wants to look. This is a very very powerful outcome of this incredibly intense uh, year-long experience to develop this. And I think all reasonable people, if they had the chance to sort of put the noise aside and disregard all those terrible conspiracy theories, would look at this and say, I want this for my family. I want it for myself. People are dying right now. How could you possibly say, let's wait and see if that might mean some terrible tragedy is going to befall? And especially for healthcare providers, please, people, when you look back in a year and you say to yourself, did I do the right thing? I hope you'll be able to say yes, because I looked at the evidence. HHS Secretary Alex Azar was on Face the Nation and he described the progression of the distribution of the vaccine and the the time horizon for getting to, well, not quite herd immunity, at least according to some experts, but certainly to 100 million people vaccinated by the end of February. We're launching a very complex nationwide distribution program. Do it right, do it measured, get the job done right, anticipate problems, but know there are going to be hitches and hiccups as we go, and we will work to solve it. This is the U.S. military that is running this operation. It's what they do. We're mm-hmm. using the private sector entities, as they said at the summit. This is what we do. They know how to do this and let's let them do their jobs. So you still expect to vaccinate 20 million people by the end of the month, even though you just shipped out 3 million doses this week? Oh, sure. Yes. So we'll be getting more and more Pfizer product and we've got a 12 and a half million of Moderna product, assuming that we get approval at the end of this week on Moderna that will ship out very soon thereafter. So 20 million vaccinations this this month. And then we think we'll be up to 50 million total vaccinations of of people by the end of January and 100 million shots in arms by the end of February, just with the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani. He is a senior science advisor to the Men's Health Network, past chair, chair emeritus of the American Public Health Association, former alumni association board member of Columbia University's School of Public Health as well. Dr. Giorgiani, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Um, so is there any reason to uh, be uh, any uh, anything other than... Um, optimistic and enthusiastic like uh, Dr. Collins and Dr. Hahn were over the weekend, HHS Secretary Azar as well, with respect to the distribution and uh, and, and taking of this vaccine? I'm very optimistic uh, about the safety of the vaccine, about the efficacy of this vaccine and the ones to come. I'm very optimistic that there is a diligent, earnest effort to get distribution moving as quickly as possible. Uh, and I think there's also a lot to be said for the fact that the data so far has shown this to be, as with most other kinds of vaccines, a, a very, very safe product. Now, there are uh, things uh, that can go wrong. I think we all understand how the best laid plans of mice and men can somehow go awry. Uh, but I think that this is a unique uh, process, <clears throat> which thus far has delivered just right on time. 
The suggestion is that uh, 70% of the population needs to be uh, vaccinated in order to achieve herd immunity. Uh, This seems to be somewhat in dispute because uh, even CDC and Fauci have given very wide ranges in terms of the number of people they think have actually been infected, you know, asymptomatic asymptomatic uh, infections versus the number of recorded cases, which is 16 million. I mean, the, most people believe it's a significant multiple of that. So are we are we still talking about the need for 100 million or 250 million vaccinations to get to herd immunity? Yes, absolutely. And the reason for that is it's totally unpredictable to know how much immunity you have from the natural immunity process where you get the virus and you, you know, you develop antibodies to it and how long that natural immunity will will last. So how strong and how long are very critical factors. We do know because we have data and it's been measured and it's been studied uh, that you do get a very robust immune response with the second dose of the vaccine, particularly in older folks. Uh, So you really don't want to gamble on the fact that some people have had very mild uh, infections. uh, Some people have had very severe infections. You don't really know how many cases are mild or how many are severe. Even in that 16 million, you just know that they've been they've been tested positive. Uh, and the ones that the multiple, as you say, and I agree that's the case, we do have more people who are asymptomatic and maybe mild and just thought it was a, a bad day at home or a bad couple of days at home. Uh, they were probably mild infections. So you, you don't want to gamble with uh, we're not sure. Uh, you want to gamble with uh, this is a very good uh, good bet. Um, what about uh, on the other end of the spectrum, like K through 12 students? Um, discussions now about mandates and whether or not uh, this should fall into the category of other mandatory vaccines one must get to attend school, uh, given what we know about children's uh, uh, mm-hmm. vulnerability to this and their relative uh, uh, low incidence of spread. Uh, is uh, is vaccinating children a, a real priority? Should it be a mandate? It's not a priority at this point. Uh, and also the other fact is that the data uh, is in uh, individuals 16 years and older. Uh, so I think at this point we have to take a wait-and-see attitude, get the adults, uh, get the older, the vulnerable patients, persons with comorbidities, uh, men in particular, you know, COVID, uh, does affect men more severely than it does women. Uh, so men in particular need to be very, uh, uh, you know, diligent in being vaccinated, being vaccinated early. But the school kids, I think we have to wait a little bit and get the primary uh, infected individuals or potentially affected individuals vaccinated first and then look at the school children. Whether it becomes part of the regular regimen uh, depends on whether we this herd immunity actually will make the virus go away, which folks don't believe it will, uh, or just brings it under control as we have other communicable diseases like measles, mumps, rubella under control. All right. So, uh, doctor, let's let's uh, use me as a guinea pig. So I'm a 48-year-old guy who's, uh, you know, in the shape of Charles Atlas or something approximating that. Um, and, you know, I don't take the flu vaccine every year. Um, I don't get sick virtually ever. And I, I'm not an anti-vax or anything like that. I'm just sort of indifferent to the vaccine and getting it just doesn't seem like it's a big priority for me. Uh, disabuse me of uh, that perspective. Feel free to chastise me as necessary. We will never be rid of this virus. We'll never get it under control unless the majority of people your age uh, get vaccination. So not only is that important, I believe, because you just don't know how you're going to react 
to the virus if you get it. And we've seen and we've read about cases of otherwise healthy, robust individuals, male and female, uh, getting whacked pretty hard by the virus. Uh, I can I can think of The Rock is a good example. I think he's in pretty good shape. Maybe he's in better shape than he's similar. Yeah, yeah similar. Yeah. <laughs> he is Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani, Senior Science Advisor to the Men's Health Network, past chair of the American Public Health Association, former Alumni Association board member of Columbia University School of Public Health as well. Dr. Giorgiani, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. We have to be on any time I can be of help to you. You have a Thank great you. day. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and we uh, switch to uh, the electors and uh, the Trump election challenges, as uh, we'll have... uh, have the electors of the 50 states meet today, some virtually, and uh, vote the popular outcomes in their states, uh, barring something um, unforeseen. And uh, this was in part the topic of the Stop the Steal rally over the weekend in D.C. that uh, descended into violence for a time because, well, some Antifa members stabbed for Trump supporters. That will generate a vi- that violence will generate a violent response. But uh, at the uh, peaceful part of the day. You had, among others, Lieutenant General Mike Flynn address the tens of thousands who showed up to protest the outcome and support the president. And uh, General Flynn was uh, staying optimistic, despite the Supreme Court's holding on Friday evening that uh, they would not hear the Texas suit because Texas did not have standing, setting the Trump campaign back. And that's really why we're standing here today, because we are in a crucible moment in the history of the United States of America. And, And remember... The courts, the courts do not decide who the next president of the United States will be. Now, I will say that there is a, there are paths. There are paths that are still in play. Trust me. I mean, there, there's a lot of activity that are still, that's still playing out. The, and I always tell people, the courts aren't going to decide who the next president of the United States is going to be. We, the people, decide. Mm-hmm. And uh, General Flynn said, all we want is a little transparency. What's wrong with that? Why don't these people around the states, around our country, get it? I mean, we're only asking to just show us a little transparency. Why not recount? Why not look at the signatures? Why not look inside these machines? Why? I mean, why not? What are they afraid of? What are they hiding from? They're hiding from something. They're hiding from something. And we'll talk a little bit later in the show to Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who is uh, the head of the Texas Republican Party, about that Supreme Court decision. Over the weekend, uh, Trump allies like House Minority Whip Steve Scalise were pressed to uh, to call for uh, concession and uh, unity as if this is the path to unity. Chris, uh, Scalise with Chris So, Wallace. So bottom line, even though the electors t- on tomorrow are more than 270 of them are going to say that that Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. You're not willing to recognize him 
as the president-elect, and you're not willing to stop contesting this election. Well, hold on, Chris. First of all, Joe Biden has been going through a transition that even President Trump supported while he's also following what the court allows. There are legal challenges allowed. Nobody said back during Bush v. Gore uh, prior to the Supreme Court finally resolving it. And ultimately, there, there was an you know, electors met. There was a swearing in. Nobody disputed that, maybe some on the Democrat side. But you didn't see people ask prior to that. Uh, to pass judgment uh, before it was fully resolved. Let the legal process play out. But if you want to restore trust by millions of people who are still very frustrated and angry about what happened, uh, that's why you've got to have this whole system play out. There will be a president sworn in on January 20th. Uh, but let's let this legal process play itself out. For reaction, we're pleased to be joined again by Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dan. Still paths. Uh, let this play out. Everybody chill out. Uh, the dates are the dates, and uh, we'll have decisions uh, according to those dates that are prescribed. Well, it's getting late in the day, isn't it, um, yeah. for those paths? I mean, I'm not sure what those paths are. Um, you'd ha- At this point now, you have to go state by state to the state courts and then federal courts in the states because the Supreme Court decision uh, to me, was gigantic. And the way they did it, frankly, I think, did send the message that you're off track here. This is not, this is not going to work. And so I think that the, the, burden, the burdens are getting higher as the time is getting shorter. And I have been saying for some time that you know, there wasn't an endless period here where the public would tolerate this. I mean, leaving aside you know, the never Trumpers and the media and all of that. And, you know, some of the commentators, uh, I think there was always a short window, relatively speaking. And I think the constitution set it up to be that there was room. There was, there was some time, essentially it's, it's about six weeks from the date of the election until the electoral college. And so we have arrived, we've, we've gone through that period and I'm not, I think with each passing day now, uh, this effort will will try more and more people's patience and begin to look less legitimate in the eyes of many. And so I think that there there is potentially a price to be paid by the president for his own future uh, and for the Republican Party, particularly in Georgia. Um, so I, I think where the two Senate seats are up. So I, I, I think that the... Some caution is advised from this point forward. Uh, when we come back with Michael Goodwin, uh, ask him the question if some caution is advised with some of Trump's pronouncements in the direction of his attorney general, Bill Barr. Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor, will be back with more right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, President Trump uh, doing an extended interview with Brian Kilmeade from Fox and Friends over the weekend. And um, he had this to say about uh, Attorney General Bill Barr and uh, the uh, story last week that uh, Bill Barr knew about uh, the Hunter Biden investigation that was underway and failed to disclose it, formally disclose it publicly or correct the record based on erroneous media reporting uh, as the way uh, in comparison to 
President Trump offering the comparison, how Mueller corrected the record on uh, Michael Cohen when it came to a BuzzFeed article. Take a listen. Joe Biden lied on the debate stage. He said there's nothing happening, nothing happening. And Bill Barr should have stepped up. I'll tell you what. Say what you want about Robert Mueller. When BuzzFeed put out a phony article, I think it was BuzzFeed, but BuzzFeed put out a phony article. Bob Mueller stepped out and he said that article was a phony. And then there was ultimately proven no collusion. No. After two years, no collusion. But Bob Mueller stood up and he he interjected that this article was false. Bill Barr should have done the same thing. Jonathan Turley said that uh, he had no choice, that he, he would have been like it would have been like uh, James Comey again. All he had to do is say an investigation's going on. And by the way, I don't want to see anything bad happen to Hunter Biden. Whatever it is, it is the facts. But I don't want to see anything bad happen to Hunter Biden. And I purposely stay out of it. But when you affect an election, Bill Barr, frankly, did the wrong thing. When they are saying things, making statements, and the press is purposely not reporting it, Bill Barr, I believe, not believe, I know, had an obligation to set the record straight, just like Robert Mueller set the record straight. For uh, more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Goodwin, uh, rejoined by Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Michael, that's not exactly accurate that nobody reported it. Your paper did, the New York Post. Sure. And Fox did as well. Nonetheless, Dan, I think the president, though, does have a strong argument here because he's right that Robert Mueller did correct a BuzzFeed article that essentially said the president had instructed Michael Cohen to lie before the, to, to Congress and that um, uh, Robert Mueller had this information. But it's and not so but that's think- not. Uh, Just to interrupt here, it's not exactly apples to apples because uh, at that point when Mueller corrected the public record, the case against Cohen had been adjudicated. A plea was agreed to. That was clearly not the case with Hunter Biden, which is an ongoing investigation. And and per DOJ policy, you're not supposed to comment on ongoing investigations. Had Barr commented, he would be subject to the same criticism that conservatives like me were leveling against Jim Comey for doing the same. I agree with you up to a point, but I think where the president's argument is strongest here is that the Robert Mueller's uh, comment was not about Michael Cohen. It was about whether President Trump had done something illegal, whether President Trump had instructed Michael Cohen to lie before Congress. So you recall there were lots right. of stories that the president had suborned perjury and therefore that was a crime. and He could be impeached and removed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was a very big deal. And so for Mueller to come out and effectively say Trump didn't do that, that killed that storyline. And it was it was it came even as Mueller was investigating Trump. So I think that's where the parallels lie here. Now, I think it's also true that Barr would have been acting as Jim Comey did, which is something that that most conservatives uh, would say in general, you do not want the FBI stepping in to pick winners and losers in elections. And uh, Comey, the Clinton people, certainly think he cost them the election by coming out and talking about uh, the email investigation. But I think that, you know, the president's argument here is that the record was false. The public record was false because of what Biden said. And and the uh, bar should have corrected that public record. That, I think, is less persuasive because... Here, here, Biden was saying something about a about a case that wasn't even known yet. Uh, I'm not even sure Biden knew there was a case. 
so it, it would have been asking Barr to do a lot. It would have been very controversial. I think it would have in many ways discredited the investigation that's now going on. So in, in terms of the investigation, it's probably better that Barr said nothing. But certainly in terms of the election, I can understand why the president would wanted would wanted this stuff to, to have come out. But of course, sure. as you said, Dan, the real issue is that the media and big tech, by and large, sat on all this. And yeah, yeah I mean, and I raised yeah. and I raised another point too, if I could just quickly in my yeah. column, which is the deep state leaks everything, right? It, it, everything bad about the Trump people. Did it not leak this about Biden, or did the media know about it and intentionally not report it? Now, we know they didn't report it when the Post broke the story. We know the big tech censored the Post. But there must have been other leaks to the media that were not published because the leakers leak. That's what they do. Well, right. But but to your point, I mean, we knew uh, there was reporting before the election about this investigation going back to at least 2018 and subpoenas had been issued for laptops. I mean, this was reported in places like The New York Post and on Fox News. And we were discussing it, but it doesn't mean we can compel the rest of the press corps to uh, to amplify that uh, those facts uh, as well. And they they clearly chose not to and in furtherance of protecting Joe Biden's electoral chances. Now, yeah. the, the, so the question becomes now we're at this place uh, before the there's administration changeover. Do you think Attorney General Barr should issue should appoint a special prosecutor in the Hunter Biden investigation? I, I think it's essential because this is not just about Hunter Biden. It's about Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just reading this email that Fox uh, published to some length today. It's showing uh, it's an email on the laptop from one of uh, Hunter Biden's partners. And it says, you didn't report $400,000 of income from Burisma on your 2014 tax returns. And then it goes through a long list of things he did report in various years. I think in 2017, Hunter Biden made over $2.4 million. I cannot find a single dollar that wasn't in some way engendered by his father, Mm -hmm. by his father's position in the government. Uh-huh. I think all of Hunter Biden's income comes from selling access to his father. And so I think that Barr should do the next best thing, which is appoint a special counsel, lay out the scope of the investigation so that there are no secrets now or later. And we can all rest assured that the truth will be found. And if Joe Biden or his attorney general wants to fire that special prosecutor, let him go ahead because I think it'll it'll be a bombshell on their own heads. He is Michael Goodwin, columnist for the New York Post and contributor to Fox News. Michael, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Crisscrossed in the wrong direction. Found myself in a conversation from a missed connection. The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection.
Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, here we are again. Uh, the nickname game. Cleveland Indians uh, set to announce that uh, Indians will no longer be their nickname. This uh, New York Times reporting yesterday. So it'll be the uh, Cleveland baseball team to complement the Washington football team. No surprise. I mean, this is a couple years removed from them, remember, completely eliminating uh, Chief Wahoo as the mascot or the insignia for the team name because that was offensive to Native Americans. No uh, team nickname replacement has been suggested. So, again, it'll be sort of in limbo a la the Washington football team. Of course, this one calls to mind uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Chicago Blackhawks, the Atlanta Braves. They uh, have all said they don't plan on changing their names, those organizations. But, you know, that's what Dan Snyder said for a long time, the owner of the Washington football team. So funny thing what political pressure will do, particularly in all of these uh, sports leagues where woke politics is the order of the day. We'll see. I mean, how I would challenge my hometown, uh, ruling class elites, the enlightened identitarians who run the city of Chicago, how and the state of Illinois, how can you tolerate uh, such insensitivity? Isn't that what we're to understand? Anything that references Native Americans, even though, of course, a nickname is an honor, not a moniker of ridicule, but that's lost on the left. Of course, they're humorless. And not that this is funny. They're humorless and ignorant, just two characteristics that are endemic to the left. Uh, how, how do you tolerate those pullovers, uh, those sweaters with that uh, big uh, Indian on the front for the Blackhawks or the Braves or the Chiefs, Arrowhead Stadium? That's got to be renamed. Even reference to, um, you know, the uh, indicia of Indian Warcraft, Native American Warcraft is offensive, I would think. Wouldn't you? So I, I, I want to see how fans react in Kansas City and Chicago and Atlanta, but particularly Kansas City and Chicago in the Midwest, a little bit different, I think, to uh, making it uh, the Chicago Hockey Club, the Kansas City football team. And I'll tell you what, I'll do you one better. Consistent with the 1619 Project, it's bigger than the nicknames, isn't it? Consider this, the uh, inventors of baseball, the modern way, Doc Adams and Abner Doubleday, the inventor of basketball, James Naismith, the uh, man credited with inventing modern football, Walter Camp. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Exactly. The problem is systemic. These were sports that were invented by white patriarchal oppressors. And so, like uh, America, racism is in the DNA of these sports leagues. All the sports should be disbanded. The professional sports leagues should be disbanded. Their genesis is poisonous. So all of this is just fruit from the poisonous tree, just like America. America's history needs to be written, rewritten because we're uh, endemically racist. It's wired into our DNA. Well, same thing with these sports leagues. Forget uh, eliminating some nicknames, changing some mascots. Eliminate the leagues altogether so we stop marginalizing people of color by uh, the NBA turning uh, black Americans, uh, 75% of the league, into multimillionaires, billionaires in the case of LeBron James soon enough. Football, baseball. We're marginalizing minorities because fruit of the poisonous tree. Eliminate the sports leagues altogether. How's that? This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show, including Parler. President Trump uh, over the weekend visiting with Brian Kilmeade from Fox and Friends had this reaction to the decision on Friday by the Supreme Court of the United States, 7-2 decision with uh, Alito and Thomas dissenting, not to hear the Texas challenge to the election results out of the four states in question, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia. Here's President Trump. But no judge has had the courage, including the Supreme Court. I am so disappointed in them. No judge, including the Supreme Court of the United States, has had the courage to allow it to be heard. The Supreme Court, all they did is say, we don't have standing. So they're saying essentially that the president of the United States and Texas and these other states, great states, they don't have standing. Today, of course, is uh, the date at which the electors in the 50 states meet, some virtually and uh, ostensibly will cast their ballots consistent with where the popular vote stands in their respective states. There's no indication anything other than that will occur. Steve Scalise, House Minority Whip, was on with Chris Wallace yesterday, and he was asked about uh, today. Is today the end of it then when the electors vote? There's going to ultimately be a conclusion to this. But for now, I think if you just discount the fact that millions of people wonder why is it that in some states, Florida, Texas, large states, they had the results by 10 o'clock that night. And then in other states, it was days and weeks. And during those days and weeks, you saw massive vote swings that just seed a lot of distrust. That's got to get resolved. Uh, Chris Wallace putting this question to, uh, well, to Steve Scalise, who was there, but also to the 126 Republicans, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who signed on to the Texas lawsuit in support of it, and the, the 17 states as well. I mean, you were talking about disenfranchising the 10 million Biden voters who supported uh, the president-elect in those four states. Do you feel comfortable throwing out millions of votes of your fellow Americans? Well, do you? And uh, Eric Swalwell, no less, tweeting out, it's official. GOP leader McCarthy cemented his role in history next to Confederate leader Jefferson Davis. He fought the will of the American people and lost, setting aside the hilarity of the Chicom's Matahari's boyfriend labeling others enemy of the Republic. Enemies of the Republic were pleased to be joined for uh, more on this by, I guess, somebody who Eric Swalwell, the distinguished congressman from California, would call the Jefferson Davis as well. He is Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, retired U.S. Army lieutenant, former congressman from Florida, and he is the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. Colonel West, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's good to be with you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and to your family. And um, Eric Swalwell, and uh, I guess uh, I, I assume other Democrats as well, characterizing you as uh, trying to uh, circumvent the will of the people, uh, being uh, seditionists, essentially. Well, I find that very interesting in that if you look at the preamble of the Constitution where it talks about we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. And so the more perfect union was based upon us having a Constitution of rule of law. And so if you want to talk about the true secessionists, if you want to talk about the real seditionists, it's those people that are undermining the rule of law in the United States of America. And that's what the Texas lawsuit was all about that was joined by 17, 18 other states, 106 members of Congress, was to say that we cannot have 
have states such as Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin that are going out and conducting the legal actions, activities, unconstitutional actions. You cannot have courts that are changing election law, secretaries of state or governors changing election law, implementing things such as universal mail-in ballots because a quote-unquote emergency pandemic does not suspend the rule of law, does not suspend the Constitution, and then have no consequences. And therefore, you do have damages to the states that are law-abiding, that follow the Constitution. And under the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Under the Law Clause, that is why Texas and those other states came together and brought a petition for redress of their grievances to the only court that can adjudicate between states, and that's the Supreme Court. Sadly, the Supreme Court abdicated its roles, responsibilities, its enumerated duties under the Constitution to interpret the law. And uh, with respect to um, the question that Chris Wallace asked, you know, were you ready to set aside, you were seriously ready to set aside uh, 10 million people who voted for Joe Biden in those four states? I, I guess the response would be no. That's not what was sought. What was sought is to set aside uh, improper votes, not legitimate votes, number one. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the that's that's the thrust of the Texas lawsuit. Well, then also it shows the ignorance and the incompetence of Chris Wallace because the Texas lawsuit did not say casting out or throwing away any ballots. What it did say was that the decision on the electors should go back to the state legislatures, which is constitutional. It is in Article 2, Section 1. It's called the uh, Electors Clause. So I think that we need to get back to teaching history and civics in the United States of America, not just to our kids in school, but also to some adults. And so when you say, uh, which is a version of what you said in the statement, that you should perhaps law-abiding states should bond together and form a union of states that will abide the Constitution. You know, what do you, what do you have in mind? Well, I have in mind exactly what the Founding Fathers said in the preamble to the Constitution. They created the Constitution, and that Constitution is supposed to make us a more perfect union. Those who do not follow the Constitution are the ones that are damaging this union. And so these states, such as what you saw with Texas in the 1718 that joined together, they've got to protect themselves against the tyranny, the totalitarianism, the absolutism, the unconstitutional actions of a few states. And uh, that's what we have to try to solve, because this is a major major issue for our constitutional republic in the future going forward. If the Supreme Court does not want to adjudicate between states, then how do we resolve this issue, these issues? Yeah, I mean, obviously you can have sort of um, states that are similarly disposed in terms of the, the leadership to sort of act in concert with one another, you know, collaboratively like you had here with the suit. The other thing, it seems to me, would be states where you have uh, Republican-controlled state legislatures in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, tightening up uh, their elections and not allowing administrative bodies to expand definitions, expand deadlines, and Mm -hmm. all the things that happen this election. You're absolutely right. And again, that goes back to what the Texas lawsuit said, is that the decision for the electors, because of these unconstitutional acts that were done by the courts in these states and also executives in these states, being that the Secretary of State or the governors, such as in Georgia, where the Secretary of State sent the consent decree out, they said that you don't have to verify signatures on these mail-in ballots when the South Carolina Democrat Party had just tried to enact the same thing, and the Supreme Court ruled against the South Carolina Democrat Party. So why would not the Supreme Court speak in this matter as well when uh, when we talked about George and what he did with that consent decree? So yes, these state legislatures must now, when they go back into session, tighten up their election laws, and that's one of the things that we're looking to have. Election integrity is our number one legislative priority for the upcoming 
funding Texas 87th legislative session. Your former colleague in the House, Mo Brooks from Alabama, is suggesting that um, January 6th is an important day, too. That's when Congress gets to tally the votes, and that's uh, the constitutional responsibility of Congress. And uh, if he can enlist uh, at least one senator to uh, challenge the electors, to challenge the legitimacy of the count, then perhaps this gets thrown to the House. That seems to be what he is intent on pursuing. Would you sign on to that? Is that a, a, a judicious play by Representative Brooks? I think so, and I will sign on to anything that's constitutionally based because our founding fathers put into our system uh, all of these checks and balances to make sure that we don't have exactly what we see happening in the United States of America right now, and we need to enact all of those checks and balances. Uh, just a question about Texas because, you know, it's one of those uh, states that everybody's moving to, uh, in, like your former home state of Florida, those are two states. But with redistricting afoot in, in advance of 2022, we're going to see Texas and mm-hmm. Florida gain congressmen in places like New York, California, Illinois lose congressmen. A lot of the worry, the handle is, and this played out a little bit this cycle, is because of the flight from catastrophically run blue states to more well-run, more opportunity-laden red states like Texas and Florida and South Carolina and Georgia and Arizona. They're going to turn those states blue. They're bringing their voting habits with them. I'm not so sure that's true because I, I place a lot more emphasis on political culture, and I think we saw that play out in part in Texas this time. But as the Republican Party chairman of the state of Texas, give us your perspective on the sure. sort of future of Texas electorally. Is this going to be a, a reliably red state uh, 5, 10, 15 years from now? I believe it will be a reliably red state, and the reason why is for the fastest-growing demographic in Texas is the Hispanic community. And what did you see from the Hispanic community this uh, past election cycle? You saw the Rio Grande Valley flip red to the point where it brought about the chagrin of Barack Obama, who attacked Hispanics for voting their principles and values and not just continuing to blindly go along with the Democrat Party. This was a reason uh, in this election cycle why it was so important to hold on to our state legislatures, Eric Holder, Barack Obama, you know, tens of millions of dollars, uh, Michael Bloomberg as well, to try to flip state legislatures so that they could control the redistricting process. Texas will pick up two, maybe three new congressional districts, but we have uh, Republicans in control of those redistricting lines. So Texas will stay a good, strong conservative state uh, for the next 10 years. He is Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. He is harder to kill than Steven Seagal. You know, he survived the terrible motorcycle accident, uh, which we appreciate. Thank goodness he did. Retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel, former U.S. Congressman from Florida, Chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, Colonel West. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. God bless. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We uh, transition from Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, and it's appropriate to call him Lieutenant Colonel or Colonel, to uh, Dr. Jill Biden, and it's not appropriate to call her a doctor. <laughs> this uh, piece of the Wall Street Journal by Joe Epstein over the weekend, boy, did this draw a reaction. How about it? Is there a doctor in the White House? Not if you need an MD. Jill Biden should think about dropping the honorific, which feels fraudulent, even comic. Indeed, it does. A friend of mine, uh, Gene Kroom, who's the uh, president of Judson University in uh, suburban Illinois, he, you know, he's, you know, he's a, a doctor of 
something, some academic subject, but he's not a medical doctor. And uh, I'm one who has always said, uh, you know, I only call medical doctors doctor. So Joe Biden is just Joe Biden or first lady Joe Biden if uh, and when Joe Biden assumes the presidency. Croom's uh, dad used to say, yeah, my son's a doctor, but he's not the kind of doctor that can help people. Exactly. By the way, I, I'm a Juris Doctorate. I have a Juris Doctorate. And nobody's ever called me Dr. Proft, not seriously, nor should they. But of course, to slight the great academic, uh, Jill Biden, is to draw the opprobrium from academia and also Wall Street Journal education reporters. We'll get to it. But here's what uh, Dr. Because he's got an honorary doctorate. I'm using this sarcastically per his piece. Joe Epstein wrote, Madam First Lady, Mrs. Biden, Jill, kiddo, a bit of advice on what may seem like a small, but I think not an unimportant matter. Any chance you might drop the doctor before your name? Your degree is, I believe, PhD in education, earned at the University of Delaware through a dissertation with the unpromising title, Student Retention at the Community College Level, Meeting Students' Needs. A wise man once said that no one should call himself doctor unless he has delivered a child. Think about it, Dr. Jill, and forthwith drop the doc. He uh, taught at Northwestern University for 30 years without a doctorate or any advanced degree, writes Epstein. And oh, by the way, after this piece, Northwestern University, my alma mater, quick to react and scrub uh, Joseph Epstein from anything from their website and uh, anything associated with Northwestern because this column is misogynistic. Right. It's misogynistic to criticize Jill Biden for this phony baloney Dr. Jill business uh, anymore, even though the, the issue is about the doctor. It's not about it's a woman. I would say the same thing about Dr. Tom Davis, the former Iowa basketball coach, who I think had a Ph.D. in botany or something. He's just Tom Davis, not doctor. Uh, and I do that with uh, virtually all my guests. At least I try to. If sometimes I slip, I slip. But that's my perspective. Make no bones about it. He uh, writes about uh, PhDs. The PhD may once have held prestige, but that has been diminished by the erosion of the seriousness and the relaxation of standards in university education generally, at any rate, outside the sciences. Getting a doctorate was once an arduous proceeding. One had to pass examinations in two foreign languages, one of them Greek or Latin, defend one's thesis, take an oral exam on general knowledge in one's field. At Columbia University of an earlier day, a secretary sat outside the room where these examinations were administered, a pitcher of water and a glass on her desk. The water and glass were there for the candidates who fainted. A far cry from the uh, few doctoral examinations I sat in on during my teaching days where candidates and teachers addressed one another by first names and the general atmosphere was more something like a coffee clatch. The uh, prestige of honorary doctorates has declined even further, and Epstein is been conferred an honorary doctorate and he talks about you know celebrities and billionaires getting um you know this sort of credentializing because you're known uh, like Stephen Colbert getting an honorary doctorate from Northwestern or big donors getting and philanthropists getting honorary doctorates like they're men or women of letters and they're not a Madam First Lady, hard-earned though it may be, uh, may have been, please consider stowing it at least in public at least for now for the small thrill of being Dr. Jill. Settle instead for the larger thrill of living for the next four years in the best public housing in the world as First Lady Jill Biden. And the howling that this drew, not just from Northwestern, but including Northwestern. It's just remarkable. It happened so fast, Paul Gigot had time to write about it in between the publication of Epstein's column on Friday and uh, and his uh, the piece that he wrote on Sunday, in part because, uh, of course, the, uh, the news side of the Wall Street Journal, which is left like every other newsroom in the country, went to Twitter to bitch. Melissa Korn, she is uh, remarkably but tellingly uh, a reporter who covers higher ed for the Wall Street Journal. This is what she tweeted. 
I cannot bring myself to include a link because why give it more air? But that op-ed belittling Jill Biden, urging her to drop the doctor, mocking her research on community college, likening her degree to an honorary doctorate is disgusting. There's a thick wall between the news and opinion operations at Wall Street Journal, but it still saddens me that they print it, which is why the way I felt about many op-eds over the years. Pieces like that make it harder for me to do my job well. Boo, fracking, who, Melissa Korn. You know what it tells me about the job that you do, Melissa Korn? Is that you're just a flack for the uh, totalitarians and assorted cowards in charge of higher education, aren't you? Of, Of course you are. You know, the reporters who are essentially propagandists for the established order. You know, the the big government mouthpiece. So in the D.C. press corps, that's for big government generally. When you cover a specific area, K through 12 education, that's for the teachers unions. When you cover higher education, it's for the administrators, the professorate and, you know, the, the students, which basically largely are coming from the same perspective. Sad is me that they print this in an op ed page. This is a controversial position. I mean, it's first, first of all, it's a fun piece. And secondly, it is ridiculous to be running around calling everybody with a Ph.D. doctor. Generally speaking, even in a bygone era, I don't think it's appropriate. But as Epstein writes, particularly in this era where these sheepskins, even the advanced degrees, have become sort of substantively worthless because of the relaxed standards, the lack of academic rigor that Epstein wrote about. Uh, but uh, – Wow, the uh, the the reaction from uh, uh, from you know from the left, as you would suspect, uh, university. As I said, Northwestern cancels her, and uh, Paul G. Go writes about uh, the Biden team strikes back. Its strategies promote an identity politics campaign against an op-ed on Jill Biden's use of the doctor uh, use of doctor, uh, and uh, uh, and I think this was actually wasn't even published in the in the written version until Saturday. The uh, spokesman for uh, Mrs. Biden, Michael LaRosa, tweeted, James Toronto, you and the Wall Street Journal should be embarrassed to print the disgusting and sexist attack on Dr. Biden, Dr. Biden, running on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. If you had any respect for women at all, you would remove this repugnant display of chauvinism from your paper and apologize to her. This is the line of attack. You're attacking her because she's a woman. Poor little Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden. She can't defend herself. This is the double standard that is so, well, comical to borrow from Joe Epstein. She's this uh, accomplished woman, but she can't defend herself on the merits of why she should be referred to as doctor. That's the issue, not her gender. The issue is this uh, honor. Well, what what I would agree with Joe Biden, uh, what I would agree with Joe Epstein in contravention of Joe Biden, basically an honorific. Yeah. Pete Buttigieg's husband, Chastin Buttigieg, the author could have used fewer words to just say, you know, in my day, we didn't have to respect women. Right. What it, what Go writes, why go to such lengths to highlight a single op-ed on a relatively minor issue? My guess is that the Biden team concluded it was a chance to use the big gun of identity politics to send a message to critics as it prepares to take power. There's nothing like playing the race or gender card to stifle criticism, It's it, it, which is exactly the card they play over and over and again. And uh, as I said, as with COVID, if you think it's over because Joe Biden is poised to be president of the United States, then, um, well, all you have to do is uh, examine this case study of the reaction to Joe Epstein's rather innocuous column. This is Dan Brown. Is it any wonder I've got too much? 
fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, over the weekend, reports of a uh, massive data leak coming out of the Chinese communist regime that details, really, the infiltration of Chinese communist operatives around the globe. Not, And I'm not just talking about Eric Swalwell's girlfriends. This uh, coming to us from Sky News Australia that provided uh, some of the detail. Amid rising tensions in the Australia-China relationship, there has now been a major leak of official records from the Chinese Communist Party. It is believed to be the first leak of its kind in the world. A register with the details of nearly 2 million Communist Party members. It includes their name, party position, birth date, national ID number, ethnicity, and in some cases, even their phone number. What's amazing about this database is not just that it exposes people who are members of the Communist Party and who are now living and working all over the world, from Australia to the US to the UK, but it's amazing because it it lifts the lid on how the party operates under President and Chairman Xi Jinping. But this leak shows that party branches are embedded in some of the world's biggest companies and even inside government agencies. That's right, Communist Party branches have been set up inside Western companies, allowing the infiltration of those companies by CCP members who, if called on, are answerable directly to the Communist Party to the chairman, the president himself. So uh, in terms of intellectual property theft, that's one issue. But of course, the national security implications are even bigger. Uh, That uh, reporter for Sky News Australia also provided the detail on the chain of custody of this leaked information and, uh, you know, how many different uh, looks and verifications it went through before the reporting. The data was extracted from a Shanghai server by Chinese dissidents, whistleblowers, in April 2016, and they've been using it for counterintelligence purposes since then. It was then leaked in mid-September to the newly formed international bipartisan group, the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, and that group's made up of 160 legislators around the world. It was then given to an international consortium of four media organisations... The Australian, the Sunday Mail in the UK, the Standard in Belgium, and a Swedish editor to analyze over the past two months. And that's what we've done. Uh, and this uh, re-raises the interview that uh, CBS News's Catherine Herridge did of Director of National Intelligence John Radcliffe uh, the other week. She posted uh, over the weekend, for emphasis, an extended clip from that interview that speaks to when Radcliffe briefed members of Congress about his assessment on the threat that China poses to national security. You wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal, and you say China is targeting members of Congress with six times the frequency of Russia and 12 times the frequency of Iran. What is behind Beijing's aggressive approach? So they want laws and policies out of the United States that are favorable to China. And what they're really trying to do is, through blackmail, through bribery, through overt and covert influence, trying to make sure that only laws that are favorable to China are passed. Have you been to Capitol Hill, and have you briefed this threat information to lawmakers? I was so troubled by what I saw from the position as the Director of National Intelligence that I went and briefed both the House and Senate Intelligence Committees on this information, which they found surprising and troubling. But that's part of alerting uh, members of Congress to the threats that they're facing 
and that the American people are facing in this broad campaign that China has to replace the United States as the world's superpower. When did you brief those two intelligence committees? Uh, earlier this summer. Earlier this summer, and uh, they dutifully then ignored that briefing, apparently, and waited for Axios to break the story about the sort of Chinese influence operations that were ongoing, as we talked about last week, with potentially Eric Swalwell and others being compromised. And I cannot wait for more analysis to be done on uh, the two million individuals that were disclosed and just exactly what positions they occupy in the West in general and in America in particular. More on this topic. We're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be with you. Give us uh, your perspective on the importance of this data leak. Well, how many hours do you have? Yeah, right. Um, you know, first of all, this is completely consistent with what we've seen since the Chinese since 2016. When Obama went to China and said, hey, I want to sign a deal about you guys stop cyber hacking, the Chinese signed a deal and they honored it. In part, they honored it because everybody was on to them and they were in the process of reconverting their intelligence focus really to be on human intelligence, which is getting people out there and connecting with people and then trying to extract information from them or manipulate them or have them be agents of China. This is behavior that has been widely talked about. So I think it is stunning to some people, but on the other hand, it's like, have you not been tracking what the Chinese have been doing the last couple of years? Jim, let's hold it right there. And when we come back, I want to pick up on that and talk about that in the context of the investigation into Hunter Biden. More with the Heritage Foundation's Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano when we return. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we were talking with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano about the recent Chicom data leak, or at least the disclosure of it. And I want to tie that in with the investigation into Hunter Biden and the announcement of that investigation. They tried to limit it to say, oh, it's just about my tax filings and um, and I'm sure everything will uh, come out uh, in my favor, effectively was the statement. But it seems like it's potentially broader than that. And of course, this is also not really a surprise since there was reporting on this prior to the election. It's just a surprise to those who dutifully ignored it. But nonetheless, it implicates something much more nefarious afoot, potentially, than just Hunter Biden and others trying to line their pockets. Well, I mean, I think this does show how disingenuous and duplicitous many politicians and many of our leaders were. When this issue broke, remember, there was like the Democrats quickly rushed out a letter from like 65 intelligence experts that, oh, this is just Russian disinformation, even though we factually know there was they had no information, no intelligence whatsoever to suggest that it was Russian disinformation. And if it was, it would have been like a plot worthy of Mission Impossible. So it was a political statement on that face. But on top of that, you know that the Democratic leaders that were in the, in the Intelligence Committee, in the House, in the Senate, in the know, they all know what the Chinese are doing and that this is consistent with that behavior. Nobody's saying Hunter Biden is a criminal or a spy or a traitor, but these activities are consistent with Chinese efforts at manipulation. And it was a legitimate story, and it was suppressed intentionally by the press 
even though there was every bit of evidence to suggest that it was a legitimate story. And, you know, you mentioned Catherine Herridge. I got to say, one of the few real national security reporters out there with incredible talent and incredible integrity, one of the few people doing real serious reporting at the national level on these kinds of issues. Yeah, I completely agree. It was Fox's loss when she moved over to CBS. We've talked to her many times on this show. She's excellent. Just sticking on Hunter Biden for a second, um, you know, more information trickling out now that uh, people are acknowledging this is an actual story. Email to the manager of his Washington, D.C. office building in September of 2017, asking her to make keys for his office mates. That would include the big guy. It would also include a, a, a guy named Gongwen Dong, who was identified as the emissary for the chairman of the Chinese energy conglomerate, CEFC, who Biden was doing business with, received $5 million and so on and so forth, as Tony Bobulinski, his former business partner, detailed. But again, now you're bringing a Chinese communist-backed energy company's uh, top people uh, over into uh, access to uh, – Whatever's going on in Biden Obama world in D.C. in September of 2017, including with potentially Joe Biden himself. I mean, um, the, the, the specter has been raised again of a special counsel and whether or not Barr should appoint a special counsel to investigate the whole Biden Inc. matter before uh, the turnover in the administration, potentially. And, and I wonder what your perspective on that is. Well, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to go back about why, so we don't jump too far too far too fast. Why this should have been an issue that everybody should recognize was a real potential issue, um, even before the election, and that is that fundamental to the Chinese Communist Party's way of operating, and an idea we've talked about on the show before. It's this notion of civil military fusion, that every element of Chinese society is a is responsible to the Chinese Communist Party. So whether you're a Communist Party member or you're related to somebody in the Communist Party or you're an employee of the Chinese government, you are essentially potentially a tool of the Chinese government. So even without this list, we know that potentially millions and millions of Chinese individuals around the world could be blackmailed or taking orders from the Chinese Communist Party, certainly anyone involved in a Chinese company. And so when this issue was raised, there, there should have been automatically a concern of um, uh, a counterintelligence risk, and it, and it should have been investigated. I, look, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know what the bar is to, to trigger a legal investigation. I don't know what is what the FBI has, what the CIA has, what, what there is in the counterintelligence front. But clearly, there was a, a public effort on the part of the political opposition and on mass media to bury this story so it wouldn't damage the Biden presidency. Clearly, the, the government in, in, a, in a way was kind of, well, you're, you're, on the one hand, you have, oh, we don't compromise ongoing investigations and everything else. But on the other hand, we don't, how do we do this and not just be seen as a political tool of the president going after his enemy? So it creates this very difficult situation. But here's the, here's the people who know this and love this. The Chinese Communist Party, they know how our system operates. That's why what Radcliffe said was so important. They know how our system works, and they're looking how the leverages, the weaknesses in our system in order for us to be the, the you know, in the, in the famous words of Ghostbusters, the instruments of our, our own destruction. 
with respect to uh, China, it seems to me like so many have learned nothing from the Cold War. I mean, what the Chinese are doing seems to me like a 2.0 version of what uh, the Soviets did for generations with sleeper agents and the like. Is is that a fair comparison? Well, the difference is uh, the Chinese have a lot more resources. They have a lot more uh, assets. Uh, and they have a lot more avenues of attack. Uh, so in some ways, it is a threat that is, is much more per- pernicious than, than the Soviet threat. I mean, you can, you know, we lost John McClare this week, and you can go catch Tinker Taylor's yes, soldiers right. five before these networks, leaves uh, Netflix. But, I mean, the Russians, uh, even though America was a very open society compared to the Soviet Union, I mean, it was it, it was not easy uh, to place these assets and to manipulate them compared to what the Chinese, I mean, this is the difference between trying to get to England in a rowboat and, you know, and, and the and D-Day invasion. I mean, we are literally being invaded by, by, by China, but here's the deal. This is not new. It's been going on for like at least six or seven years that they've had a major unit campaign against the United States. And by the way, since you mentioned John Lacar and Ticker Taylor soldier spy, of course, you were referring to the BBC series uh, where Alec Guinness uh, stars as opposed to, even though Gary Oldman was great in the movie version, you, you got to watch the BBC series, don't you? Would you agree? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Lieutenant Colonel yeah, Jim Carafano, Vice President of Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Lieutenant Colonel Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Returning to COVID vaccines. When do we get a vaccine for COVID lunacy? We need Big Pharma to develop that to inoculate the COVID enthusiasts, the zero tolerance lunatics, like those who work for United Airlines, apparently. The story of the Orban family trying to get from Denver to Newark with their two-year-old girl. And uh, she was resistant to put a mask on. Dad tried to put the mask over and just cover her you know, nose and mouth with the mask. And that let that be sufficient. Not sufficient. Thrown off the flight. Listen to this exchange because mom videoed, videoed it with commentary. And then you hear dad's interaction with one of the uh, United uh, Airline employees all the way to the end where they're thrown off. We just got kicked off the flight because our two-year-old would not put on a mask and we tried. I mean, I'm gonna put a video on and we're banned off of United forever because a two-year-old would not put on a mask. Okay, let me start talking. Okay, let me start. Okay, okay, I thought you wanna sit down. Trying to put the mask on the daughter. She's resisting. You know, be gentle with his two-year-old daughter. We're, we're over here holding this mask on her face. Telling him he's got to get off the plane. And I took that opportunity and I ran with it. You see this? I'm literally filming her face. I'm not so I just think that it's so, so stupid how you enforce this so strict. It is. It makes zero sense. There's no compliance. This virus has a 99% survival rate. 
You know what I mean? Like, if we use our minds... If we use our minds. What happens now? Uh, you know, you first class, can you work? No, sir. Yes, sir. You can't fly what are you guys doing? Seriously. There's a no tolerance policy. No tolerance policy. Uh, and by the way, for those who say, well, it's the politician's fault, uh, there's no federal statute requiring a no tolerance policy for mask wearing uh, on air, air on, uh, on planes for two years and younger, and younger. In point of fact, what's the World Health Organization recommendation? Mask wearing five years and older. But that's not United's policy. And United's the one enforcing this policy and the zero tolerance lunacy taking it to the ridiculous extreme. Zero tolerance policy. Where do you hear that otherwise? K through 12 education. It's the same sort of thinking that gets kids expelled from school for using their thumb and index finger to make a gun because that's tantamount to bringing a gun, an actual gun to school, according to the zero tolerance commissars. Lunacy. And by the way, what's the mask policy on airlines? Well, unless you're drinking a cup of coffee or you're eating something or so forth. So you could just put a cup of water in front of the two-year-old's mouth, pretend she's drinking, and it would be fine. Because COVID suspends itself around people who withdraw their masks so that they can take a sip of water or a sip of coffee. But it's zero tolerance because we're not allowed to think. We're just here to be, I mean, they might as well be replaced by robots, these people. And, and, and I include the executives at United Airlines enforcing this policy, imposing and enforcing the policy. Zero tolerance for common sense is what it is, and it's a reminder, uh, one of my favorite observations from Chesterton, he who has given into unreason is ready for unkindness. Well, this is unreason, and this is what unkindness looks like, putting this family through this uh, trial and tribulation, uh, this embarrassment and inconvenience over their two-year-old daughter, being unkind because you're being unreasonable. You need to be unkind in order to enforce unreason, and that's exactly what United Airlines did. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We spend a lot of time on this program talking about uh, education, K-12, through as well as post-secondary education. Why? Because to borrow from the United Negro, College, ne- United Negro College Fund, that is, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And uh, a lot of minds in the West are being laid waste by the educational systems in the West, as far as I'm concerned. And as I think we've effectively documented from a lot of different perspectives over the years, uh, what is the point of K-12 education? What is the point of post-secondary education? What is the point of the classical liberal arts education, like the one I earned, not received, I wasn't passive, earned, uh, to develop an appreciation for the things that are beautiful in life, in part, to be able to think independently, come to your own conclusions about things, to, as um, uh, Yates observed, to um, light the fire that makes you a lifelong learner. I don't know everything. I will never know everything. It's a constant development. And so the demise of the humanities in higher education is cause for great alarm. That's why we spend a lot of time on it talking to academics from, as I said, a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different fields. And here's an opportunity to do so again. And this is a perspective that is uh, shared really only very narrowly, um, but importantly, nonetheless, 
He is Professor Justin E.H. Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Paris. He's the author of the forthcoming The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, and he's uh, written a great piece uh, over at uh, Substack. Uh, what are the humanities? Uh, we spent a lot of time telling you what they're not. Maybe Professor Smith can tell us what they are. Professor Smith, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I uh, The opening paragraph to uh, your piece at Substack uh, was was uh, both entertaining and depressing at the same time. I, I'll just, uh, this part of it, I'll just read one sentence. If we were living in a culture dominated by grown-ups, Martin Scorsese would be considered the purveyor of middle-brow, forgettable fare rather than gold standard of sophistication, and at least the childless among us would not even have to be aware of Spider-Man's existence. But that is not <laughs> the case, is it? Um, give us um, sort of what was the impetus for you to write this um, layered piece about the state of the humanities in, in higher ed? Well, I started with that kind of uh, shock tactic uh, right. to yes. you got my attention. people mad. In order. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been on a crusade for a long time against uh, superhero movies, not so much the movies themselves as the kind of endless bickering about them on social media. And by now, social media uh, are the prevailing forum for public debate today. So the idea that you're supposed to take up a particular position on Black Panther or Mad Max or Spider-Man, lest you be on the wrong side of the culture, to me, uh, kind of sums up everything that's wrong with political debate today. And in a strange way, uh, that kind of inane, uh, polar, symbolic stance taking has jumped the fence from social media into universities and that's reflected in our humanities curricula so that's why i started with these uh these hot button cultural issues like and uh, like my, you, and as i said you got my spidey senses tingling uh and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, you, you write and i just want you to develop this just to give sort of broad mm -hmm. perspective um, here's why I think here, you, this, these are your words. Here is why I actually think humanistic inquiry should be defended. You're talking about getting mm -hmm. out of the I thou binary uh, because it mm -hmm. elevates the human spirit. Humanistic inquiry should yeah. be defended. Something that inquiry that exists outside of you because it elevates the human spirit. Yeah, that's my basic point. <laughs> that 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 sums it up very well. And I had to say that because uh, when my original piece came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education, there had been a kind of interpretation of it that took me to be saying that we should study uh, the you know Homer's uh, uh, epic or uh, I don't know uh, uh, Aztec calendars or whatever might interest a humanist just for their own sake just uh, because we like it and I took that to be a kind of trivialization of what I had originally been saying because it's not that you study them for their own sake that's of course something that the, the the work of a pretty trivial and thoughtless life. It's rather that by paying attention to these external objects that don't have anything to do with your initial world of references that aren't the superhero movies you watched when you were growing up or whatever, in paying attention to these external things, you start 
start to kind of become transformed yourself. It starts to elevate your spirit in ways you wouldn't have expected at the outset. So it's not just do it for its own sake or do it just because you have to fill your life up with something or other, but rather do it indeed because it elevates the spirit. That was the argument. And and, and again, I sort of made reference to it, but let me be explicit. You're not mm-hmm. coming from sort of a uh, conservative free market uh, uh, perspective in terms of your worldview on things. You just sort of agree mm-hmm. with uh, a lot of conservatives who support the concept of academic freedom rather than imposed yeah. orthodoxy. And because you share yeah. that view with conservatives, you're on the outs with uh, your progressive <laughs> brethren. Yeah, like I said, because I share that view with conservatives, I've constantly got conservatives courting me. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, and I've constantly, I've constantly got the progressives angry with me. And to be honest, I don't understand how this became a conservative issue, right? If 50 years ago, it was not. 50 years ago, it was the left that, uh, that was defending academic freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. I mean, that was the basis of the Berkeley student movement in the 1960s. And somehow over the past generation or two, uh, uh, the, the polarization has been reversed, right? So for me, uh, my, my kind of a priori position is, well, I don't care which side is defending the principle at the moment. It's a correct principle. <laughs> Well, right. I mean, but Berkeley is the perfect example because the the mm-hmm. uh, the genesis of the free speech movement on campus now is one of the leaders in in uh, in suppressing uh, speech that they that uh, falls outside the accepted orthodoxy on campus to the point right. of violence against speakers they don't want on campus, right. as we've seen over the years. Right, right, right. And and, yeah. and, and, and and it sort of speaks to then what's become of college campuses generally in higher ed, mm-hmm. right, where. The um, yeah. the inmates are running the asylum and the professors, and the administrators are running scared. Yeah, well, I think I mean, to my mind, and I, I think I've, I've written elsewhere, I'm an American who's been based in France for seven years. Uh, there are complicated issues that the French university system faces, but they're very different. I think this gives me a privilege to kind of sit outside and speak openly about what I'm observing uh, because it, you know, because I have, I have basically job security, but I also do sort of feel like I'm in exile, right? I'm in exile from the American university system. And to my mind, the people who are behaving cravenly are the administrators, not so much the students. The students are just, you know, trying out their wings, right, as students always have. And they're adopting the available themes and 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 conceptual frameworks uh, that kind of come down to them in their still very short lives. Right. Uh, the people who are so cowardly, though, are the administrators who listen to the most kind of ill-formed, whimsical, uh, 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 kind of out-of-left-field demands that the students are making. Like, for example, when the professor at USC used a Chinese word, you've probably heard about this, that bears a coincidental resemblance to an ethnic slur in English. Uh, Students took offense at that. And the administrators took the students' demands to remove this person from teaching his course seriously. To me, that's just such an obvious case where the only thing you can do is come back to the students and say, sorry, 
you weren't paying attention. That is a Chinese word. <laughs> and uh, that that didn't happen, that the administrators are running scared, speaks, I think, to the danger of turning over decisions about how universities are run to a professional managerial class rather than to faculty. Now, faculty has not been terribly courageous itself, but the number one problem is the, the cowardly administration. When we come back with uh, Professor Justin E.H. Smith, I want to ask him uh, how to address that problem if the humanities are to be salvaged. Justin E.H. Smith is a professor of philosophy at the University of Paris, author of the forthcoming The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. We'll be right back with more. It was the heat of the moment Telling me what my heart meant The heat of the moment Showed in your eyes Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Professor Justin E.H. Smith, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Paris and author of the forthcoming The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. Uh, before the break, uh, Professor Smith, you were mentioning that uh, sort of the administrators bear the most amount of mm. responsibility for what college campuses have become and the sort of mm. intolerant places they become. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder what you suggest the solutions to that are, because you sort of have a uh, a, a self-reinforcing circle there. If if yeah. everybody agree, everybody's coming from the same position, then, then mm -hmm. what does the revolt look like and where does it come from? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we need more courageous faculty members, that's for sure. We need more faculty members who are willing to take career risks and to speak up against uh, kind of absurd denunciations uh, that are occurring more and more frequency. Um, I think the problem, I fear the problem is uh, economic and that what we're seeing is kind of a, a, a totally predictable uh, epiphenomenon of the economic crunch within humanities departments that makes people kind of uh, behave like 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 panicked animals <laughs> right um everyone's looking out for themselves and uh and just hoping to slide through in their very precarious careers and that means that that you know because they're so precarious most of the time they put up with absurd things and one of the absurdities right now the most obvious absurdity is that you are expected to tow a very narrow very dogmatic line about certain uh, hot button cultural political issues. I wouldn't even call them political issues. They're they're cultural issues, right? Um, issues like, um, for example, the official line on uh, uh, gender identity. For example, that's something that's obviously uh, legitimate ground for philosophical theoretical. Uh, reflection, right? Um, and yet it's completely impossible for anyone to venture to have uh, a, a position that, that deviates even slightly from, let's say, the, 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 the party line. So uh, we need more people 
bravely taking up their own positions anyway, but it's most likely that that's not going to happen in such precarious economic conditions. That's well, um, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you mentioned this, actually, uh, you wrote about uh, the, the whole pronoun thing and, um, you know, no. cite, cite your pronouns. And I actually thought it was a, a, a fun perspective, too, to say, I mean, just setting aside the uh, the ideology, ideological uh, uh, controversy with, with respect to gender identity, uh, yeah. the, the it's just gauche to, to, to suggest <laughs> yeah, right. how you want other people to refer to you in the third person. Right, right. I mean, imagine how strange it is when you start to think about it. You're you're telling people which pronouns to use when they're talking about you, but not to you, even though you're in the same room. Right. It's it's a weird thing to request. And I I, I mentioned this because in I, in uh, in, I, in my experience in France, and I've had to work hard to kind of retrain myself. You never refer to another person as he or as him or as she as a, or as her when they're sitting in the same room as you. You either pull them into the conversation or you uh, call them by their appropriate title right um and so when i started thinking about that i just thought what a strange ritual how difficult would it be to explain to uh let's say an 18th century time traveler jean-jacques rousseau for example to explain to rousseau what these people are doing when they put he him his name tags on, right? And I mean, I guess more than anything, that's what I want people to do. I want people to just admit that we're in a kind of weird uh, political cultural moment and that we're doing weird things, right? Whereas in the university environment in, 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 in the United States, the, the rule is that every new thing you're asked to do, you have to treat it with the most kind of somber, straight-faced uh, kind of uh, 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 ultimate legitimacy that it just doesn't have. But see, so I, that's I, you know, yeah, you know, it's it's it's. I hear what you're saying, and I and I, and I agree with uh, so much of it, particularly about the need for courage. I mean, that is lacking in in so many sectors, and and academia is no exception, clearly. But, you know, but where does it, you know, what's the incentive? Where does it come from? That's that seems to be the big question, because there's a lot of people that are just throwing up their hands and say, forget even the Ivy League. The Ivy League needs to be disbanded. Yeah. It needs to be discarded and just start over. It's over. <laughs> that, that That's not going to happen, obviously, not with 40 billion dollar endowments. But um, right. but but there was this this piece in Quillette a couple of weeks ago, for example, about Haverford. Mm. Haverford University, this small liberal arts college in mm. Pennsylvania, and about this mm -hmm. performance art that goes on where the students are protesting mm. against sort of like racial intolerance on campus, but they have no one to protest against because everybody agrees with them. And there's really actually no real <laughs> instance of racial intolerance, but they have to go through right. this performance where they attack the administration for not being culturally sensitive enough to being racially yeah, enlightened yeah. enough. And the administration just says, you're right. We're going to take your grievances into yeah, right. and, and that's just sort of what you're supposed to do is 
as an as an administrator, even if there's no basis for any of this, you have to give the kids this experience of yeah. protesting against the man. Well, what kind of lunacy is that in a, in a in a sixty thousand dollar a year liberal arts education? But the yeah. point the author makes is this is exactly what parents are paying for. They want this experience, right, right. and all the all that yeah. matters is the credential. So let's just have our play acting, and then they'll become trained social activists, and then they'll go work in HR departments at some Fortune 500 company, and that'll be that. Yeah, that's a pretty compelling argument. I think that that we're not seeing mass scale, uh, middle class, upper middle class conversion to woke ideology. What we're rather seeing is a kind of rational calculation among privileged people, uh, like parents who send their kids to Haverford, um, who want to have their kids trained up in speaking the right way, that is speaking in the way that will get them good, uh, good jobs after they finish college, which is increasingly speaking in the language of that kind of activism, right? Um, and I mean, it's clear because the way the way corp- major corporations are now projecting themselves is and kind of adjusting to the new reality is with um, woke billboards. You know, we had what was it, Lululemon, um, a few months yes. ago, uh, put with an ad campaign uh, trying to claim that they they were they were seeking to uh, destroy capital right now, how Lululemon could survive the destruction of capitalism is a mind bending question. But it shows that, you know, if you want to be an up, up you know, uh, an upper level manager at Lululemon, after you graduate from Harvard, you would do well to spend your four years, or I, I meant to say Haverford, you would do well to spend your four years there learning to talk to talk. So right? it's no different so at Harvard method, for that yeah. matter. Yeah. 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 This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed your piece and uh, look forward to having you back. Justin E.H. Smith, professor of philosophy at the University of Paris, author of the forthcoming The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. Professor Smith, thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Don't think people respond to incentives? Uh, I'm talking about around the globe. Uh, This is an interesting story. Didn't take very long for a migrant caravan to form in Honduras, begin their journey to the United States in anticipation of Joe Biden taking office. More than 1,000 Hondurans departed a bus terminal last week, Wednesday, headed for Guatemala. If they can make it into Guatemala, they'll continue through Mexico until they reach the U.S. border, as we've seen previously. Uh, Remember, this is uh, what uh, the Trump administration was dealing with for some time. Uh, and and this is not to be uh, heartless with respect to Hondurans suffering from uh, the devastation inflicted by hurricanes plus terrible government policy. Uh, but uh, this was something where uh, Trump had uh, drawn a line in the sand pre-COVID, you remember, and said you don't have a nation if you don't have borders and sent a very different message globally about U.S. immigration policy than had been sent by the last couple of administrations, both Democrat and Republican. Isn't that right? Uh, One uh, 
individual, Honduran, trying to make her way to the United States. We have asked God to help us, and we believe that the new U.S. government will let us in. I travel with eight people, and we all think that it is a good opportunity because the only thing we have left after having lost everything in the floods from the hurricanes, and again, that's that's tragic, but we have to have immigration policy that makes sense, not uh, wave a wand based on uh, having empathetic feelings for people that are in difficult situations the world over because, of course, there are billions of such people. Uh, but that's not the position of Joe Biden. And uh, a lot of people around the world pay attention and uh, listen very intently on what the president of the United States says. Which brings us to our uh, next guest in the piece he wrote, uh, Julius Krein. He is the founder of American Affairs, and he has uh, written a piece of Populism Deferred, where he sort of characterizes Trump actually as a bit of a transitional president. Uh, and with Trump going Trumpism will go as well, but some of the underlying policies he pursued that have, and the way he pursued them, sort of redefining the conversation about topics like immigration and trade will endure. Julius, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. So, um, what about that? I mean, how, how did you react to it? I'm sure you saw the story too about the you know uh, Honduran caravan making its way uh, up to the border, uh, you know, in anticipation of a Biden presidency. I actually, I did not see that story yet, um, but uh, it'll certainly be an interesting test. My suspicion is that the Biden administration, you know, I, I don't think they'll want to be put in that uh, difficult of a spot right away. Um, my guess is, you know, they'll certainly try to send a different message rhetorically than the Trump administration. But, um, you know, we have to remember that Obama actually deported, uh, d- deportations under Obama were higher than they were under Trump. And, um you know, Biden and Democrats, you know, recognize how they won the election, too, in the upper Midwest and so on. So uh, we'll see. But um, my guess is the Biden administration itself doesn't really want to, to have to uh, embrace open borders right away. Right. And, um, and, and you know, and part of the, 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 the Trump record on immigration is in part when you send a message that we're serious about border security, you disincentivize people from attempting it in the first place. So fewer deportations are necessary, the argument would go. Uh, certainly some of the data would, would back that up over the last several years, yeah. Uh, I want you uh, write about to Trump's mi- mixed record, and you suggest that you know part of it was he was sort of a man with uh, a foot in, in two worlds. One was the drain the swamp world that challenged the the establishment orthodoxy, including within the Republican Party, and the other was, well, uh, within the uh, GOP establishment in terms of some of the policies he pursued. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the ironic things about uh, the Trump presidency is in many respects, despite his Twitter feed, he was a rather conventional Republican president. Uh, that's right. Um, you know, I in that piece, I tried to go through kind of every every major policy area from from trade to taxes to immigration uh, to big tech and, and several others and some I didn't have enough space for but in each case you basically see you know an, an administration divided against itself as it were um, one hand going one way one hand going the other um, and like I said I think you, you add it all up uh, you know, as a writer, you always want to make a strong claim, but in this case, because the ideological tendencies were, were constantly cross-cutting, when you add it all up, you end up with uh, a legacy that's really hard to interpret one way or another, and that's why I call it, you know, a transitional presidency. And, and really the test for Trump 
uh, is not his record itself, um, which is so conflicted, but whether it leads to uh, a more coherent uh, administration in the future uh, that, that I would say could execute uh, the more promising themes of the 2016 uh, campaign more effectively. Well, let's uh, explore what was uh, uh, promising and what was incoherent. We'll do that when we return with Julius Crenn, founder of American Affairs. Back with more right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Julius Crenn, founder of American Affairs, talking a little bit about the Trump presidency and and uh, what he argues is uh, its transitional nature with respect to some of the promising policies because of the ideological conflicts within the administration on topic areas. Uh, one, it seems to me, may be best uh, exemplified by having both uh, Peter Navarro and Larry Kudlow as top economic advisors. So those are very different uh, worldviews on matters of economic policy, including trade policy. So is that, you know, and, and I, I think the whole team of rivals thing is a bit uh, overstated, almost, uh, you know, it's almost like mythologized. But do, is that a good encapsulation of some of what the sort of uh, ideological promiscuity was in the administration? Yeah, I would say those two are almost perfect symbols of the divided nature of this administration. And yeah, certainly in, in Trump's case, I'd say the, the team of rivals ended up kind of undercutting each other rather than, than adding up to, you know, the whole greater than some of the parts. But certainly, I, I, as I say in the piece on trade, I think Trump actually did make the most progress on a number of the themes of the 2016 campaign. But at the same time, you know, while he was imposing tariffs. He was also cutting a lot of the programs that are supposed to be uh, working to bring back uh, manufacturing to the U.S. And so, again, you just end up with this mixed record. And, and so um, let's, let's talk about um, what you see as some of his successes that uh, you, you hope are carried on in whatever Trumpism 2.0 looks like, you know, to you know, begin where you see fit. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, a, a stronger stance on trade, particularly vis-a-vis China, and certainly the rhetorical desire to reshore uh, manufacturing, really reindustrialize the U.S. I think that's the beginning of, of any attempt to really revitalize the economy and, and strengthen uh, both, both from a technological standpoint as well as a national security standpoint going forward. Um, I think the other you know, interesting part of the administration and one that has been in different ways sort of become a bipartisan consensus position is, again, the rhetorical um, stance of opposition toward some of the big tech company excesses and social media excesses, uh, both from a kind of political censorship standpoint as well as from an economic concentration uh, standpoint. And we'll see where that goes. Another one I didn't get to mention in the piece was on, on health care. Interestingly, in the last few weeks, the Trump administration, uh, Department of Health and Her- Human Services, finalized a rule that would set the price of Medicare Part B prescription drugs based on prices negotiated with other developed foreign countries. So, I, you know, that's something that people have talked about doing for a long time. No one could get it done until Trump. So I think that will be interesting. Well, so are you then uh, discarding the idea that uh, Trump could come back and run in 24 uh, as opposed to perhaps being a kingmaker behind the scenes? 
Yeah, I suppose I have a somewhat contrarian view on that uh, in that I don't think he will actually be that potent of a political force uh, going forward. And the reason I say that, unfortunately, is that I think, you know, over the, the course of his administration and in, in the last few weeks and months in particular, I think he really got away from that big picture issue agenda that carried him in 2016. And if it's just Trump, the personality and the tweets and the controversies, I actually think, you know, then he is a celebrity novelty candidate. Um, so maybe he can go back to those core issues and really have a more ambitious agenda than anyone else. But at the same time, there's a lot more people now who have also figured this out and are starting to make, you know, stronger arguments on these things than he ever has. I'm thinking of people like Josh Hawley uh, and many others. So even if he were to attempt to come back, I think that so-called populist lane will be a lot more crowded next time. Probably so. But um, and I, I think, it, well, you, you react to this. It seems to me what you're saying, something that I've said, too, is that, uh, you know, if he makes it about uh, the American people, then he's in a good position. If he makes it about it himself and how he's being victimized or how he's being wronged or how he's being treated unfairly, then it uh, it sounds petulant after a while. That's my view. And again, you know, we're all feeling around in the in the dark. But the people from I, I'm hearing from, you know, Republicans, people who were very big fans of the president, you know, they're they're saying, you know, I, I had to stop following Donald Trump on Twitter because it was too much even for me. And, and I think I think you hit the nail on the head. If, if he's if he's really putting forward a serious agenda that's addressing the real problems, um, he is able to do that in a in a crazily effective way sometimes. But if it's just about him, I don't think anybody cares anymore. Well, and, and part of this needs to be, it seems to me, um, delivering Georgia uh, on January 5th. And uh, because it will be, it, you know, if he is out there campaigning as he has been and promoting the two Republican candidates and the Republicans hold the Senate, then it will be seen as some a testimony to his continued political popularity that he helped turn out the necessary vote to put Leffler and Purdue over the top. And, and he can also springboard that to do what has been some suggested by some that he will do, which is travel around with Kevin McCarthy and pick particular House seats where he can be helpful to help Republicans take back the House in 2022. I mean, if he goes on that track, then he may have some staying power. Uh, very possible. But again, I think, you know, really talking about the, the core issues, which in 2016 he was the only one doing, um, that's going to be, above all, the most important thing. You know, I, people seem to have a view uh, that American democracy, they're at once too cynical toward it and, and at once, you know, I think, I think too naive, too cynical, because they think everybody's just motivated by these scandals and these subrational impulses. I don't think that's the case. I think people, you know, actually do pay attention to the policy, at, at least at a big picture level. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's also there's just a lot of other other factors behind this. And as I said in the piece, you know, Trump's uh, interesting, promising policy agenda items from from 16 often, you know, really met met their downfall, uh, you know, at the hands of the Republican establishment more than the Democrats. So we'll right. see. Yeah, right. And, and uh, I mean, you know, I think about uh, Josh Hawley and some of those who've picked up some of those other issues and obviously have a much different personality and demeanor and way of communicating. But the problem they have is they're sort of on the inside and they've been on the inside for a few years now, at least. And so the skepticism of every, anybody on the inside from Trump world. Right. And, and so does that perhaps leave a lane open to somebody who's even as the incumbent president was running as the outsider against the swamp? Perhaps. I mean, there's a sort of deeper paradox here, which is on the one hand to 
to convincingly bring forward agenda items that the political class has consciously ignored for decades, you need to be an outsider. On the other hand, to actually get them done and be able to overcome the so-called swamp and work effectively in Washington, you sort of have to know what you're doing and how to put together a team and who can be on your side and have, you know, a larger group of allies and and cadres, so to speak, than than Trump ever did. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Julius Kren, founder of American Affairs. Julius, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. You can never surrender. podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We conclude uh, this Monday edition with a uh, review of the media, just yet another example. And what you're about to hear from... Uh, local network affiliates around the country, this mashup that was done regurgitating Amazon press releases. It's not just for the Amazon slash Washington Post anymore, lest you think it ever was. Just remember this in the context of the ridicule that the D.C. press corps heaped on Sinclair, Sinclair Media, when it did a mashup of news anchors at Sinclair Affiliates stating the corporate policy with respect to news reporting. That's not propagandizing for some outside interests, that's giving the viewer an appreciation for the philosophy behind the reporting done by those Sinclair network affiliates, right? That is to be ridiculed. That is some evidence of groupthink or, or propagandizing. What you're about to hear from these network affiliates in reciting the verbiage that probably was just ripped from an Amazon press release, this is not propagandizing. Take a listen. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Amazon has transformed its operations in response to COVID-19 to protect employees and keep packages flowing. Amazon has transformed its operations in response to COVID-19 to protect employees and keep packages flowing. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy while still delivering those packages to your doorstep. The company is keeping employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. It spent $800 million on increased wages and overtime pay during the pandemic. It has spent $800 million on increased wages and overtime pay during the pandemic. It has spent $800 million on increased wages and overtime pay during the pandemic. It has spent $800 million on increased wages and overtime pay during the pandemic. Amazon says it has spent $800 million on increased wages and overtime pay during the pandemic. Every single one of Amazon's workforce of nearly a million people has played a critical role in making these changes happen. I hope that they feel that passion that we have for safety. So they can stay safe and healthy while you do too yeah news bought and paid for news bought and paid for by amazon right as somebody who uh, ran with part of a local group of newspapers from a conservative perspective transparent about it but ridiculed for being bought and paid for because we were privately financed i don't know these other news news outlets are as well and uh, did local news stories from a different perspective than the chicago and illinois press corps because this is where the local papers reside 
you know, that that was somehow illegitimate. That is uh, transactional journalism. What you're hearing from those network affiliates, and by the way, this is transmitted right from the Washington Post to the print outlets around the country that just that that get spoon fed the same way these network affiliates do. You know, this is fine, and if they can buy and pay for propaganda in advance of market position and branding for the company, what else can they buy and pay for? Whatever they want. Don't stay safe. Stay informed. Stay courageous. Stay sensible. Stay tuned. Join us again tomorrow. Thanks for being with us today. This is the Dan Proft Show.